You know, unity is something that's been sought after from since the beginning. The only problem is, no one can agree. In the famous open letter penned in 1963 by eight Alabama clergymen titled, A Call for Unity. This was in response to the social unrest occurring during the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King, from an Alabama prison, wrote an open letter response to A Call for Unity, disagreeing with the type of unity that they were calling for. His letter was titled, A Letter from Birmingham Jail. And this letter is where we get the famous phrase, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. In 1993, Queen Latifah released her most famous song, Unity. And as she spelled the word throughout the song, U-N-I-T-Y, she also followed with these lyrics, quote, Don't you be calling out my name. I bring wrath to those who disrespect me. So that's one way of uniting. So to say that we live in a time of division is an understatement. You know, one could say America is more divided than ever. Division over social issues, race, gender, the economy, and it's no longer East versus West, and it's no longer red and blue, it's no longer Giants versus Dodgers, it's no longer the Air Force versus all of the other inferior services, no longer Democrat against Republican or liberal against conservative or pro-choice and pro-life, we divide even answering the question, what is a woman? We divide even answering the question, what is a pastor? We divide even answering the question, what is a baby? And apparently, we divide over this question of whether or not men can get pregnant. Division in the home, Division at school, division in the workplace, division everywhere. And the church is not immune from division to the type of music that is played, to how loud it's played, to what kind of music is played, to the building program or or media. How much content do we push out or more important matters? Matters of doctrine, church practice, church tradition, church governance, and on and on and on. Researchers from the University of Southern California recently published a research study trying to answer this question. Why is America so divided? And the root cause answer after all their research is what they dubbed the infodemic. The spreading of fake news through social media. And our enemy is slick. The people represented right here, this cross-section of people right here, the Pew Research Center says 95% of you have access to a smartphone. 92% of you are on social media every single day, 
And more than half of you are on social media almost constantly. So this is spiritual warfare. And dear Christian, you need to be on guard. See, Titus 2, if you remember, a few months ago we went over this. Paul is encouraging the church not to not be malicious gossips. So let me translate malicious gossips into our modern vernacular. Fake news. Spreading it. Let me translate that word into its original language. It's the word diabolos. It's the very word described of the devil many, many times in Scripture. It's actually made up of two Greek words. Dia, which means through, and balo, which means throw. Such is what our enemy does in fake news and malicious gossips. It comes in between. Separates. It divides. It polarizes. It's meant to evoke emotion and rash decision-making so that you are no longer sensible. It's meant to tempt you to no longer be sober-minded. This is exactly what the devil did in the garden way back when in Genesis. He threw something in between Adam and Eve and almost immediately caused division. So in a sense, when someone is dividing and causing division, there's a sense that they are furthering the devil's work. You know, division and disunity is spoken of a lot in Scripture. Paul has a lot to say about this because he knows how prevalent it is and how important it is not only to your spiritual life, but to the life of the church. And you may be thinking, like how I was thinking, man, if you are a Christian, like a true Christian, like a real Christian, like a spirit-filled Christian, then shouldn't unity be automatic? Shouldn't it be easy? You know, unfortunately, nowhere in Scripture is that promised at all. If anything, the fact that the New Testament speaks of, of, of many Christians, many believers struggling for unity, tells us that it's anything but easy. You know, we only need to read through the letters of Paul to see this. Here's just a small sampling. Just write it down. You have to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul reproves the Corinthians. Stop quarreling. Stop with the divisions. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul warns the Galatians. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, those are dangerous. Philippians chapter 4, Paul entreats Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord and he pleads with others within the church, intervene. Yodia and Syntyche were misunderstanding one another. Paul himself, Paul himself had a sharp disagreement, if you remember that, Acts chapter 15, with Barnabas over John Mark. So much so, this disagreement was so sharp, they had to go their separate ways. They couldn't even be together. Later, though, they did reconcile. Praise God for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So, we are going to be in Acts chapter 4, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there. And we're going to parachute right in, but just as a mini ramp up to where we will be, the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, 
If you recall, Ephesians chapter 1, there we were reminded of God's blessing of redemption. That we've been united with Christ. That Christ has joined Himself with us. He's blessed us. He's forgiven us. His kindness has led us to repentance. In chapter 2, we were reminded of this awesome, eternal reality of being made alive. We were once dead. Now God has made us alive. He loved us and made us alive together, united us with Himself. We were urged to in Ephesians chapter 2, to remember when we were separate from Christ. You know, dear church, let that, let that reality sink in. Life without Christ. I was talking to a brother just this past week, going through some difficulties, and he said, man, life is already hard. And I'm glad I have hope. I can't imagine what life would be like without Christ. Life without Christ. You know what life without Christ is? It is absolutely life without hope. It's life without purpose. It's life lived in vain. Life without Christ is a life that just eats, drinks, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And that's it. You know, some of you here don't have Christ. And so I beg you, come to Christ. Now, He can make you alive. He will give you eyes to see and He will take you out of the darkness. You know, by the time we get to Ephesians chapter 3, we are floored because of all that Christ has done. We are flat on our faces, as it were, because of what God has done through Christ. It's miraculous. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unfathomable. And so we get to chapter 4. The book turns. And now Paul, after three chapters of deep doctrine, and this is not outside of Paul to do this, in Titus, Titus chapter 1 was deep doctrine, and in verse, uh, chapter 2 and 3 was all act. Now because of that truth, you have to do something. The book of Romans is the same thing. The first 11 chapters, deep doctrine. Then chapter 12, you've got to do something now. So here we are in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters of of this doctrinal truth, reminding you of what Christ has done. And now chapter 4, there are some great realities that need to manifest in your life. Paul is saying, now sound doctrine, what you know, dear church, leads to sound living orthodoxy as it were, leads to orthopraxy. Believing means behaving. The reality of a changed heart now manifests in a changed life. You are to obey this, Paul says. And you're not to obey this like begrudgingly, as if you don't want to. No, you want to. You want to because if you are struck By the beauty of Christ, you're going to realize as you see Him, He's stunning. You don't want to take your eyes off Him. You're you're obsessing over Him. Your eyes are fixed on Him and you're fixated. I don't want to disappoint Him. He's been so gracious to me. I don't want to do anything that, 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 that puts Him down. I don't want to make much of Him. 
Oh, this morning we're going to talk about unity and Christ's desire for unity within His church. And so what do I mean about being united? What I mean is this. It's being one with one another. It's being one in heart because of what Christ has done. It's being one in purpose. It's being one in love. It's being one in obedience. Such is the call for biblical unity. Keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 4 and turn with me to John 17. You know, unity is very important to our Lord. So much so that Christ prayed for us that this would be our reality. So John chapter 17, go ahead and turn there. Read with me verse starting in verse 20. It says there, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in what? Unity. That the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Dear church, this is for our joy. Unity is for our joy so that the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians chapter 3, will be made known through this church. So the title of this message is Unity, Spirit-Empowered, Christ-Exalting, God-Glorifying Pursuit. My main point is this, simply put, you pursue unity because Christ pursued you. You pursue unity because Christ pursued you. And we're going to have only two points that will guard our time this morning. First, we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, that we are to pursue unity. And second and last, we'll see in verses 4 through 6 that we are to protect this unity. Pursue and protect. Back to our text in Ephesians chapter 4. Read with me the first three verses. It says there, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So our first point, we are to pursue unity. You know, the Apostle Paul, he's in prison while he's writing this, and right away, he wants us to know. What I'm about to tell you, Paul says, it's worth it. It's worth it. Pursuing unity is worth it. It's worth being imprisoned. Because it glorifies Christ. Oh, it makes, it makes much of Christ in this fallen world. You know, the reality is the only reason we can even pursue this biblical unity 
is because we have been called. We've been called. You've been called, 1 Peter chapter 2, out of darkness into the light. You know, Christ pursued you. You know, all throughout Ephesians, it uses these big words. You've been predestined. You've been elected. You've been chosen. You've been made alive. The, you know, here's the difference. Here's the difference between coming and going to Christ. You know, Scripture never implores you to go to Christ. Why? Because going implies you're in control. Going implies, ultimately, it's up to you. You'll go when you want to go. You're implored, rather, to come to Christ. Why? Because coming to Christ is passive, meaning someone else is drawing you in. God, through His Spirit, through the work of Christ, is effectually calling you, drawing you in. And you're not being drug in. You you won't even want to resist because you want to come. And because of this reality, Paul in verse 1 implores you. In other words, he urges you. In other words, he begs you to walk. Walk, meaning how you live your life. Dear Christian, how you live your life. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul's making an appeal to you. You know, it's interesting there. Paul's an apostle. He can command you. He has delegated authority from our Lord. He can command you, live this way. But He doesn't command you. He begs you. Oh, He's making an appeal to you. Oh, such is the beginning already of unity, isn't it? Rather than commanding one another, oh, let's make an appeal. Paul is appealing to you. Live this way. Walking in a manner worthy. That word there is axios. Here's what that means. It means suitable. It means appropriate. Walk in a manner suitable of the truths you just learned in the first three chapters of Ephesians. This word also gives us a visual of a scale. And we know what an old school scale looks like. It's supposed to be balanced. The input is consistent with the output. And so Paul here is saying, because of your union now with Christ, you, a Christian, your life is to look distinct. It looks so distinct, you were once dead, now you're alive. That's how distinct this looks. Your life now manifests in an obedient, holy, righteous way. Not perfect, but growing in Christ's likeness. You're now beginning to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. No longer manifesting the deeds of the flesh. And what's unfortunate here is there are way too many. Way too many. Individuals that say they're a Christian, but their life looks nothing of what Scripture says a life of a Christian is to look like. So Paul here, he's not playing games. He's in prison saying, these are matters of eternity. Christian, in order to pursue unity, this is how you are to live. Not only with one another, but in our context here, in Ephesians chapter 4, unity in the church. And so what does the pursuit of unity look like? Paul here in verse 2 gives us four virtues. Christ-like virtues that are perfectly embodied in Him. You want unity that makes much of Christ and magnifies Him to this world? Then manifest these four virtues. 
What's also implied is if you are within conflict, experiencing division, then these virtues, whether one or all, are absent. Paul begins with humility. Humility. You know what being humble means, right? Or at least we have some kind of idea of what being humble means. You know, if some have no idea what humility is, then I I think we found our problem. You know, our God is an orderly God. And I want to encourage you, as you study the scriptures for yourself, you come across lists, they are in order for a reason. And there's a reason why humility is listed first. Because it is our natural state. It is our default setting. It is our, if we were boxed up, you open the box and you, you, you pull us out and you turn us on. It is our, our default setting. It's our open box design to be prideful, To be selfish. You know, in the last couple of weeks, the James Webb NASA Space Telescope may have caught this. Released images of a galaxy cluster in an area they call SMAX 0723. So apparently this is the most distant universe that we had ever seen. And this telescope is as big as a semi-truck. Really large telescope. So this galaxy cluster is supposedly billions, supposedly, okay? Billions of light years away. So in all of the articles praising this discovery, not one of them mentioned God. You know, are we surprised by that? Not really. But not one of them mentioned God. Not one of them mentioned Jesus. Not one of them mentioned the Spirit. Not one of them mentioned God's Word. But here's what was mentioned though. As this photograph was being published, our president said this, quote, look at what we achieve. End quote. It's our natural state to be prideful. You know, God says, Psalm 147, He determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. And surely, God's name for these clusters are better than smacks. 0723. You know, church history records that the Roman and ancient Greek cultures that Paul was immersed in, like this is his audience. Church history records that these cultures were so prideful that they didn't even have a word for humility. They didn't even have a word, much less have a phrase to describe what it is. It wasn't even a thought in their minds to live this way. Some biblical scholars believe that because there is no word for humility, that Paul and a number of other Christians got together and they made a word up in order to describe what this is. You know what kinds of words we make up? Selfie. Which happened to be the Oxford word of the year just a few years ago. Humility is the gateway to salvation. You know, humility is the gateway to 
sanctification. Growing in Christ-likeness. Now, why would I say that? Because if you don't believe that you need Jesus, then you're not going to go to Him. You know, in salvation, we have nothing to offer but our sin, our filth, our guilt. You know, when you came to Christ, and when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, when He saved you, it was because of His work, His kind intention, His will. You could not save yourself. And whatever work, whatever righteousness you thought you had was but was what filthy rags, and in other words, Paul describes it as dung, as rubbish, as soiled cloth. So humbly you came. You had no money. You had nothing to offer. You couldn't save yourself. And as, as you grow more and more into Christ's likeness, what humility will do is remind you that preferring others preferring their needs above that of my own, that is the obedient way. Humility, dear church, will remind you to not think less of yourself like in some sort of self-esteem kind of way. No, the humble person doesn't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 we ever need a reminder of what humility looks like? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. You know, this is where God's Word is sharp, isn't it? You know, we, we can have all our justifications on why certain things happen and this needs to happen to me or anything like that, when we're dealing with conflict, we, we can do, we can go round and round and round, and then we come face to face with Philippians chapter 2, and we have no response. Just read with me, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. You know what pride says? Is when Rockefeller was asked a question, this is at the height of his wealth, which by the way, at that time, was 1%, his own personal wealth, 1% of the entire economy of the country. He was asked, 
How much money is enough? Pride answers it with just a little more. When you are asked in the midst of conflict or division, how low do I need to go? Humility says, I need to go lower. I need to go lower. Because when we are face to face with the condescension of Christ, we can't fathom it. He existed in the form of God and then he emptied himself. And then he took the form of a bondservant. And then he was made in the likeness of men. And then he was obedient to the point of death. And even death on the cross. These are levels of condescension we cannot fathom. This is why we can't go low enough. This is our standard of humility. We can't fathom how low Christ went. Because our Finite minds cannot comprehend the heights from which Christ came. This is our standard. The ultimate sacrificial act of preferring someone else over themselves. And humility attacks our enemies. Uh, it, it, it attacks our enemies' plans and schemes against us. Because our enemy's plans are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The enemy wants you to think you are number one. The enemy wants you to think there is no one more important than you. And the enemy wants you to think that the accolades of this world are mine. And the enemy wants you to think, me, me, me. How come that person won't do that to me? They need to do this to me. They need to take the action to me. And all the while, Scripture is against that mindset because it says, blessed are the peacemakers. We pursue peace. Unity begins with humility. And humility is going low. And Christ says in verse 9 through Paul, by going low, He will lift you up. He will lift you up. Second virtue, this is something that humility produces, that of gentleness. Some translations use the word meekness. So some of your Bibles may actually say meekness in there. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. You know, meekness doesn't mean weakness. That's unfortunate. It's become a synonymous term. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. Meekness is power control. That doesn't sound like weakness, does it? It's strength restrained. You know, the word meekness or gentleness, it's used of a colt, a wild animal being tamed. Other parts of Scripture, this word is used as a, as a soothing medicine. Other parts of Scripture, this word is used as a gentle breeze. You know a person is gentle because when they are around, it tends to calm things down. Rather than someone who doesn't come gentle like a like a breeze, rather they come like a like a tornado, <laughs> knocking everything over. You know, being gentle is being mild spirited, self controlled, not vindictive. You don't want to pay back. You don't want to strike back. You don't want to take vengeance. So much of today, 
is I need to fight for my rights. Fight for my rights. And I'm not saying that's wrong as a whole. We have many rights in America, like this being one of them right here. We have many rights here that we enjoy and I believe are worth, absolutely worth fighting for. But here's what happens though. Is the fight for our rights all of a sudden gets very prideful. The voices get a little louder and all of a sudden we're drawing battle lines. Gentleness, meekness, nowhere to be found. Why? Because the infodemic and our own pride has inflated our own importance as if what we have to say is so important that you have to listen. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, how much conflict would be avoided and resolved before it even bubbles up, let's say if you were gentle towards one another, towards your fellow brothers and sisters within the church, towards parents, teachers, friends, neighbors, bosses, co-workers, and the list goes on. And in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, this is the context of the church. And we're reminded exactly where we need to go. The great equalizer, the, the, the great calibration within our minds brings us back to the kind of humble and dependent people we are to be. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Gentleness and humility are interconnected. Can't have one without the other. And here, hearing it just from, our, from the very mouth of our own Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls when we go to Christ we're calibrated that calibration produces unity and because we're looking at him by implication who are we not looking at ourselves the very source of pride take our eyes off that and look to him because he is gentle and humble Third virtue, patience. You know, as the old saying goes, we all have tons of patience until the moment we actually need it. I remember last, well, actually a couple weeks now, a couple weeks ago, driving up to our summer camp, and I remember getting, as you got a little closer to the campground, the, the highway gets, uh, you know, gets thinner, right? It's one lane both ways, it gets thin, and it's, there's t- twists and turns now. The speed limit is 35. And I think I was going 40. <laughs> and apparently I wasn't going fast enough. Because there was this minivan right on my bumper, man. I mean, uh, the, their, their license plate could have indented on my back bumper. I mean, they were right on me. And I even looked to Monica I was like, who is that? I couldn't see it. And I'm like, get off me, man. You know, like, I'm going 40, it's 35. So when the lanes finally expanded, there was a passing lane, of course, and patient man that I am, 
I pull to the to the slow lane, so you know, let this. Obviously, this this van is in a hurry, and they they are rumbling past me, you know, right past me, and I look over, and it's one of the pastors speaking at the camp, and I look at Monica, I'm like, he needs some patience, man. That dude, he needs some patience. And so the word here literally means long temper. Long suffering. The patient person endures negative circumstances. Never gives in to them. You know, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, as God's design, it takes time to learn patience. More often than not, it's learned through trials. It's learned through suffering You know, the same really could be said of all these virtues. James 1 tells us, consider it all joy when, not if, right? When you encounter various trials because it's testing your faith and it produces something, endurance. Romans 5 reminds us that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Paul, who's writing this, he knows a thing or two about patience. You know, he was given a thorn in his flesh. You know, when you study that, it wouldn't necessarily be like a physical thorn in his flesh. But nonetheless, here's the point. He begged God, take that away. God, I'm, this situation, this thorn you've given me, I don't like it. Take it away, Paul says. This is uncomfortable. Why is this happening to me? He begged God, think about that. Remove this thorn. And God, in His sovereignty, allowed for it to stay. Why? Because it humbled him. It brought him low. It taught him, don't rely on yourself for any strength. And through that, Paul penned these words, His grace is sufficient for me. His power, Paul says, is perfected in my weakness. Surely some of you here are going through trials. Hardships. You can relate, can't you, to the Apostle Paul asking God, remove whatever it is in my life. I don't like it. I don't want it. Why am I going through this? Oh, dear church, God is growing within you. Remember that we do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4.15, that cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows patience. He knows long-suffering. Remember in Matthew 26, he said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But in end there, did it? The verse goes on, Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, God gets the glory. So dear church, as you patiently endure, whatever wrong comes your way, know that it's not done in vain. As you trust Christ, who in Himself is the very manifestation of suffering long, He endured the cross. Oh, you're going to experience joy amidst all these situations where you are tempted to be impatient. We know the difference between joy and happiness, don't we? You know, the world may not know the difference, but the Bible makes it very clear. Happiness is situationally dependent. 
It's it's dependent on favorable circumstances. That's where we get the word happenstance. It just so happened to be this way. Therefore, I am happy. But joy, joy is that deep-seated contentment. It's settled in your heart regardless of circumstances going on. Joy is not situationally dependent. It's relationally dependent. Dependent upon your relationship with Christ. You know, and back to what we read earlier in John 17, Christ tells us that our joy will be made full as we are united in Him and with each other. You know, Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Some of you that have been around for a while, this used to be a t-shirt. Do you remember this? This, this was the precursor to He Greater Than I. <laughs> These used to be muscle tees, actually. And here's what we often miss, though. I love this verse. But what happens when iron sharpens iron? Sparks. Friction. It gets hot. Well, God knows what He's doing. He's, he's refining us. He's, he's sharpening us. Not so we could stab each other. It's so we could thrust a blow to the enemy, that's our pride. The fourth virtue, showing tolerance for one another in love. In other words, it's a forbearing love. Forbear meaning endure. You know, the word love there is something I know you've heard before. It's the word agape. The agape type of love. It's a, it's a benevolent love. It's a, it's a sacrificial love. It's a willing love. It's a love that says, I will love you no matter what you do to me. It's a love that's not caught up in emotion. It's a, it's a covenant type of love. It's a committed type of love. It's a steadfast type of love that when you ask the question, God, why are you so kind to me? The answer by God is because I am. And if you ask yourself, God, why did you choose me? The answer to that is because I did. God, why do you love me so much? It's because I do. You know, it's one thing to be wronged by unbelievers. I mean, you almost expect that. You almost, you almost expect to be wronged by unbelievers, but dear church, remember the context of all this is the church. So being wronged is related specifically to another Christian doing this to you. Hurting you. And let's be real. Some of us are just harder to tolerate. Am I right? Some of us are just harder to deal with, to forbear, to show tolerance. It hurts more. Aristotle said this, the greatest Greek virtue is the refusal to tolerate any insult and the readiness to strike back. Is there anything different today? So the practical question is this, what is our attitude then? to be towards him or her who is wronging us. What is our attitude supposed to be? Well, Paul's answer is this. Endure it. Suffer the slight. And this goes against what we would naturally do. Oh, we are to demonstrate a life that is superior to what we see in this world. You see, without Christ, this is impossible. Someone can go to anger management and someone can follow all the steps that they can follow. Someone can just straight up avoid conflict. 
but it will only help for just a little while before behaviors come back. Why? Because there's never any victory. Why? Because there's never any changed heart in the first place. You know, you may think, man, it is impossible to live this way. Who are you kidding? To live humble, gentle, and patient, and showing tolerance for one another? That's impossible. You know, Paul already knew you were going to go there. Remember, Paul is a legal, sharp, legal mind. And what sharp lawyers, what makes them very sharp is they can anticipate what you would be thinking. So Paul, in his legal mind, already anticipated that you would think this is impossible. Which is why at the end of chapter 3, Paul says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Paul knows. You're going to think life. this life is, is impossible. It is impossible if not for Christ. Notice there, this is how we are to pursue unity because humility gives birth to gentleness and gentleness gives birth to patience and patience gives birth to long-suffering and forbearing and enduring. And all these four virtues, verse 3, preserve Right, it guards the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice there, it will preserve it. Why? Because this is a peace we can't make. These are, this is a peace we don't, we, we don't create this peace. This peace is from the Spirit. And as believers live this way towards one another, this bond that Paul is saying will be strengthened. This bond will not be broken. This word bond speaks of ligaments that holds joints and body parts together. Those ligaments won't be severed going to hold the body together. Not perfectly, but church life that lives this way towards one another to magnify Christ. Oh, this is the obedient life. This is the best life. And it has nothing to do with material things. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with anything of this world. And so, as we transition to our last point, let me ask you a question. This unity... Are we to pursue it at all cost? Are we to pursue it to the cost of accommodating things that maybe are not in Scripture? Are we to just forsake and compromise for the sake of not having to stand on unpopular ground or to not look bad or to be liked by the culture or to be accepted by the culture, to stay relevant or whatever the motivation? Let's just be united. Do we have the the Rodney King philosophy? Can we just all get along? You know, Paul reminds us this unity we're to pursue is based on something. It's based on a foundation. This foundation, Paul says, you need to protect it. Actually, in the next few verses, rather than be more inclusive, such is the cry of the world, isn't it? To be more inclusive. More inclusive. You know, this is how some churches, some very large churches, some, some very popular churches, this is how they make the gospel palatable. They make it palatable because it's foolishness to those who believe. Therefore, it is emptied of all of Christ's demands for being a disciple so that it would be more inclusive. And in the end, it's just nothing more than a Costco membership. Just pay the fee and you're in. The Christ's call of true discipleship is to deny yourself. 
take up your cross. See, that's been moved aside. Actually, it's been removed altogether. And in the place of it is a call to come as you are and stay as you are. No demands on your life whatsoever. Christ is Savior, but He's not Lord. The Jesus being peddled to you is the hippie version of Jesus. The Jesus version of it's all love and peace and that's it. Unfortunately, that's not the biblical Jesus. So rather than be more inclusive, Paul actually encourages us to be more exclusive. Verses 4 through 6 says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Secondly, we are to protect this unity. Notice in verse 3, excuse me, notice in these three verses, the word one, the multiple usage of the word one, used seven times. So Paul is giving us a foundation for this unity. And if it's not protected, this is where fractures begin to occur. This is when division begins to occur. This is where disunity begins to occur. You know, what's unfortunate today is basically any religious survey you look at, an overwhelmingly high number of respondents, a high percentage of so-called Bible-believing Christians believe that there's more than one way to heaven. That Jesus is but one way to eternal life. That spiritual unity can be had in many ways. You know that many believe that you can attain, actually attain a right standing with God, do enough work, do enough penance for God to find favor in you. Oh, you know, many today, they no longer view the cross as their religious symbol because a cross means something you bear and a cross is something you kneel in front of. No, a religious symbol nowadays is a ladder. Just climb it. The ladder, I can climb it. You know, that's what the Pharisees believe. Because the more things I do for God, the more He's going to love me. The more He's going to find favor in me. So after I do these ten things, if I truly believe that by doing these things, then God will find favor in me, then I'm going to add more. Then I add more, I do those things, God loves me more. Then I'm going to do even more things, then God loves me even more. And yet Christ looks at them and says, your heart is far from me. You're not doing that for me. doing that for yourself. You know, more even believe you can do all of this and not even be a part of a church. Just do whatever you want. Free agent. Too cool to commit to a church. Just just roam around. You know, the gospel is not inclusive in its message. It's exclusive. You know, as I said previously, the repetitive use of the word one, that implies there is no other. There's no other way. There's no other person. There's no other means. And we don't like that, do we? We don't like being given limited options because our pride automatically thinks there's got to be another way. Like there's got to be a secret door. That's not just the one way. There's, there's multiple ways. There's something more. You know, we see the menu at In-N-Out. I know we're close to lunch, so. We see the menu at In-N-Out and we think burger, cheeseburger, 
double cheeseburger. And immediately, like, nah. There's got to be more than that. There's got to be a secret menu. So there is. There's a three by three, a four by four. That's crazy. Four by four. Animal style, grilled onions, protein style. I didn't know this until recently. You can get a grilled whole onion. Grilled cheese. So what happens is the secret menu is actually more than the actual menu. Scripture is clear. One God, one Lord, one Savior, one gospel. Just write this down. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. The Lord, He is God. There is no other. The New Testament is the same. It doesn't back off on that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ, Jesus, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. You know, Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. But by me. You see, we're not even, we're not even in the postmodern culture any longer where truth is relative. Now, we've ushered in an era of the post-truth culture. A culture that not only relativizes what the truth is, but it actually doubles down and feeds on the denial, just simply denying that truth even exists. And back to our text, one body, that's the true church. One spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. One hope, that's the hope of eternal glory when Christ returns. One Lord, that's Christ. One faith, that's God's truth revealed in His Word. One baptism, that's which the believer is declared, declaring to the, to the watching world, I'm united with Christ. And one God, the true and living God. John 17.3 says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have seen. You know, J.C. Ryle says this, quote, to keep gospel truth in the church is even of greater importance than to keep peace. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. End quote. So dear church, I beg you, don't compromise this truth. This is the very truth we stand on. This is the very truth that's been entrusted to us that we are to protect for the sake of one another, for the sake of Christ, for the unity of His church. Oh Christ, He gave Himself up for this church. He takes care of His church. He he marries the church. He will wash and cleanse His church. You know, Christ's blood flows through His church. It, it washes it. It gives life to His church. And when His church, His body, look to Him, the author and perfecter of their faith, the purifying effect of unity will be present. Because Christ's church will continue to grow and look more and more like Him to a watching world that has no hope, certainly has no unity. And so, dear church, unity is a worthy pursuit. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another, 
in love. That's the obedient way. This unity we must protect. And the only way to do that is to stand upon the truth of the exclusive gospel. Are we going to have fights? Yeah. Are we going to have misunderstandings? Of course we will. Are we going to have quarrels? Yes. But as we live in the way that God has prescribed in one another, towards one another, preferring one another in love, 1 Peter 4, 8, reminds us and encourages us, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, some of you here don't yet have unity with each other because you don't have unity with Christ. And He's still your enemy. So I beg you, lay down your arms. I know you are weary. I know you are heavy laden. So come to the one who can give you rest for your soul. Oh Lord, life like this is impossible in and of ourselves. You tell us as much. Apart from you, there's nothing we can do. And so we need your help. God, this is for our joy, that our joy may be made full as we are united with Christ and therefore united with one another, that we live in these ways. So grow within our church, God, these virtues of Christ's likeness, that it may bear fruit, not only within these walls, but also outside of these walls as the watching world looks at what biblical unity looks like. Oh, if there be any pride, if there be any sin, if there be any complaining, if there any be any backbiting God, oh, forgive us. You tell us as well, those that ask for forgiveness of their sins, that you are faithful and just to Oh, your grace is sufficient and your kindness truly leads us to repentance. It is you whom we worship and we praise in Jesus' name.